Thank you, Dan. Church, good morning. Go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah chapter 4. This is our ninth Sunday uh, here in the book of Jonah, and uh, we are certainly nearing the end of the finish line. Uh, Jonah chapter 4. You'll find the book of Jonah there toward the end of the Old Testament. If you're familiar with the New Testament, just make your way to the book of Matthew and go in reverse. But I do encourage you to have a copy of God's Word uh, open there before you or some way in which you can follow along uh, as we go through uh, Jonah chapter 4. Let me uh, read, and we, we will, I'll read all of uh, chapter 4 here this morning for us. So Jonah uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and a compassionate God, who's slow to anger and abounding in love, A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and he had sat down at a place east of the city and there he made himself a shelter. He sat in its shade, and he waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant, and he made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And he wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Church, this morning, I wonder, as we look here at this final chapter of Jonah's record, the title of the sermon this morning is Jonah's Pity Party, and I'll begin by asking you this question, have you ever been the honored guest of your own pity party? Have you ever found yourself humming those familiar words from that 1960 song, It's My Party, as if these lyrics maybe make up your theme song for life. Do you recognize that tune? If not, let me just remind you of it. It's my party and I'll cry if I want to, cry if I want to, cry if I want to. You would cry too if it happened to you. Bum, 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 right? Yeah, we've got to get that last part in there, right? We're all familiar with that song, aren't we? And unfortunately, for a lot of us, that does tend to be the theme song of our lives. I think we've all experienced moments, days, or even seasons of self-pity. Self-pity is tempting, A a pity party for oneself can indeed at times be all too attractive. It's hard to turn down that RSVP. 
In his article titled, Laying Aside the Weight of Self-Pity, John Bloom describes self-pity in this way. He says, self-pity is our sinful, selfish response to something that's not going the way we think it should. And it's a subtle sin. We often don't recognize it right away because it wears the disguise of a righteous indignation. We feel justified to indulge in self-pity after the injustice we've suffered. Even if all that happened was the fact that we just didn't get our own way. He goes on and he says, but self-pity is dangerous. It's deceitful. It hardens the heart. Self-pity is a It's a a spiritual deadener. It has a way of choking out our faith. Self-pity has a way of draining our hope, doesn't it? Self-pity is a a killjoy in our lives. Self-pity will smother out our love. It will fuel anger. Self-pity has a way of robbing from us any desire to serve other people. Self-pity also is a feeder sin, right? Self-pity has the way, has a way of, of, you might say, greasing the tracks that lead us into further sin, right? It might lead us into gossip. It might lead us into slander. It might lead us into indulgences because we've convinced ourselves, because Look at what's happened to me, so therefore I deserve this. It might lead us into substance abuse, pornography, maybe binge entertainment, right? Have you ever had a bad day and you are throwing yourself a pity party and so you just sit down in front of Netflix? And the other evening, I see, I don't watch a lot of television, it's just not my thing, but I did, I sat down one evening and, uh, and there was this, this Netflix series that we had seen. Like, it's, you know, kind of, it's, it's back in, uh, the, the timeline is like an historical English setting, right? Marin enjoys those types of movies and, and series. And so I said, yeah, I'll watch this. And we sat down and watched it and came to the end. And this is something some of y'all have experienced. I, I'd never experienced this before, but I didn't realize how easy, like, it just goes right into the next show. You know, like, I didn't even have to, to hit stop and pull out the cassette tape and go get the other VCR tape and stick it in. Like, within 15 seconds, it's, it's already hooked me into that. And I said, well, no wonder why so many people binge watch a series in an entire evening, right? Because you've had a bad day, and so it just sucks you right in. Self-pity does us no good whatsoever. It does us no good. Even if we've suffered a true injustice or some other type of evil has happened to us, self-pity is a closely clinging sin that only weighs us down like an anchor. So we need to recognize self-pity. The evidence does make a song a strong case that self-pity has subtly become, if I might make my own assessment, that self-pity has subtly become one of the most dominant and underlying sins in our culture in recent years. And the same is sadly true for the church. A victim mentality is the uniform that we wear now, and we wear it with pride. We're a people who are easily offended. Our feelings are given precedence over what is true. And we become convinced that nobody understands us. No one gives us recognition. No one cares. No one listens. And so what do we do? We dig in our stubborn heels, and we're quick to act in maybe extreme ways. And when we get caught in a cycle of self-pity, we then respond to other people with resentment. Right? We harbor bitterness. We hold on to grudges. 
we convince ourselves that everyone is out against us, and so we, we then we, maybe we retreat into isolation, we, we put into practice passive-aggressive behaviors, or maybe we pour ourselves into overwork or other types of indulgences. The, and, and it does seem, and, and I believe that one of the reasons why self-pity has become so prominent, and again, it's so subtle, one of the reasons is because of the accessibility of social media. It, en- it encourages us, right? It, it dis- first, what does it do? It discourages us. It causes us to be discontent. Oh, look at that picture of their vacation. <laughs> I've not been on vacation in five years. Must be nice to have a job like they have. They can afford a vacation like that. Right? Isn't that how we respond? And then what do we do? We think, okay, how can I somehow like provide some sort of subtweet, right? Some somehow like get back at this person in an, a passive aggressive way by by prompting, you know, boy, I wish. And what happens is then social media, then we have this crowd of people who's like, oh, and again, they're just trying to be nice. Man, I feel sorry for you. Sorry for your hard times. All of these things, right? And and it's almost like we we just breed. Self-pity. They like to say misery loves company, doesn't it? And that's what we seem to be doing. So the book of Jonah, here we are, Jonah's pity party. We are given a glimpse into Jonah's self-pity party. Right? The book of Jonah certainly could have ended in a great celebration of God's compassionate mercy. But instead, the book concludes at a man's lonely self-pity party. Right before his very eyes, God is doing a remarkable work. This, This great city of Nineveh falls to their knees in repentance. And yet Jonah refused to see it because of his inward focus. Through this morning's sermon, we're going to learn of four ways to ruin your self-pity party. All right, so we're kind of going a little bit of a C.S. Lewis screw tape letters angle, all right? So, so we're going to say, okay, based upon the observations that we make here, the wrong things that Jonah made, his response, what, what can we do that are right so that we don't find ourselves there in the middle of a self-pity party? The big idea for today's sermon all of these different points then will help support this, is that God's mercy invites us out of our self-pity. That God's mercy invites us out of our self-pity. And I hope that as we put into practice what we learn here, that we will be a people who are filled with joy. That the songs that Michael led us in this morning would not just be songs that we sing in the fellowship of believers, but that they would be songs that we can live out in some of the hardest struggles and some of the deepest and darkest days of our lives. And so the first one, four ways to ruin a pity party, okay? The first way that you can ruin your pity party is to regularly ask heart-probing questions. To regularly ask heart-probing probing questions. In this final chapter, you might say that God was pulling the red carpet out from underneath the feet of Jonah's pity party. And the way in which God was diffusing Jonah's pity party is by asking heart-probing questions. And there are three questions here in this final chapter, three questions that God presents to Jonah. We see the first one there in verse 4. It says, but the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? And then the second question that we see God ask is there in verse 9. God again says to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And then finally there in verse 11, God asks Jonah a third question. And he says, And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. The, chap- the book itself ends with a question mark. You see, questions 
when they are honestly answered, have a way of getting at the core of the issue. Good questions will engage us. They'll draw us in. Good questions will have a way of uncovering, really, the why of our hearts. In fact, Jesus, if you read through the gospel accounts, Jesus regularly employed questions in his ministry. In fact, in the gospels, Jesus, it's recorded that Jesus asked over 300 questions. 300 questions. That's how Jesus, one of the primary means, one of his primary tools of ministry. We see in Matthew chapter 5, verse 46, Jesus asked the question, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? So Jesus would ask the question and he would let it sit on the heart of the listener. Or in Mark chapter 4, verse 40, Jesus asked a heart-probing question like this, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? It's that, it's that last question of, oh, that just really digs in. Oh, Lord, I am struggling with having faith. And how, does God, how did Jesus pull out that answer? By asking a question. Or maybe in John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus said, have I not chosen you? Right? If, if you want to quench any fear, if you want to quench any pity party, just ask your, just remind yourself, answer that question where Jesus says, have I not chosen you? Right? If you're feeling sorry for yourself, and if you feel like you've gotten a raw end of the deal in this life, remind yourself that you are a chosen member of God's family. And if, if you're a chosen child of God, who cares what happens to you in this world, right? And, but Jesus gets to that by asking questions. And so here in this final chapter, God deals with Jonah by asking him questions. God confronts his pity party. Again, he's pulling the red carpet out from underneath the, the, the feet of his pity party by asking questions. And so these questions show God's compassion and grace to Jonah, right? Questions have a way of reflecting God's persistence and his patience. In a sense, I think as, we, as you read that and as you read those questions, what you should hear is the tone of a loving counselor who's wanting to help. I don't have this sense that God is speaking with, with a deep voice, right? Why are you so... I, it's more of a counseling. He's pulling him in. We see that one of the ways to throw cold water on a self-absorbed absorbed heart is to regularly ask ourselves heart-probing questions. You see, the sin of self-pity has deep roots, doesn't it? sometimes it is plain hard to get yourself out of a self-pity party, isn't it? It's hard, and so heart-probing questions will help expose the roots of our self-pity. They'll help us to see the seriousness and the danger of, these, of, of this deep disease. Honest answers to heart-probing questions, they invite us to repentance, and they help rid from our lives, from our hearts, this sin of self-pity. I think here at the church, right, one of the benefits of our encounter groups, right, Pastor Dan does such a wonderful job of putting together good heart-probing questions for us to ask each other. And one of the benefits of our encounter groups or a discipleship group is that we take time to ask each other heart-probing questions, right? When we meet as a group and when we sit together and we ask ourselves difficult questions and when we respond with honest answers, what we're doing is we're learning how to obey Jesus' command of denying ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus wherever he's leading and whatever plans he might have in mind for me. So I wonder, how often do you check your own heart? 
How often do you check your own motives by asking heart-probing questions, good questions, even questions like this? What right do you have to be angry? And as well, inviting other people to ask you those questions. Right, church, how often when we see maybe a concerning a pattern or a concerning habit in the life of another brother or sister, right? Sometimes we just immediately, right, we go in for the kill. I mean, we're like, did you know this is what the Bible says? And, 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 and we, we speak all of this condemnation. And automa- honestly, what, what tends to happen in those moments is we put up our barrier, right? But questions, good heart-probing questions, that as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we allow ourselves the permission to not only receive, but also to ask and to step into. Those questions have a way of, of kind of uh, removing that tension. It kind of has a way of awakening ourselves to the fact that, man, I am kind of being a jerk right now. I am a bit selfish or completely selfish or, yeah, The way you ask that question, you're right. I am having a pity party. So first, if you want to ruin your pity party, do this. Learn to ask yourself good, heart-probing questions. The next one, then, is this. Get involved in the work of the ministry. Again, we're looking at this text, and we're seeing how Jonah responded and how maybe we can respond differently to help keep us from the pity party. Get involved in the work of the ministry there in verse 5. We know that Jonah preferred the role of a critical spectator. He preferred being an armchair quarterback, wanting to call the shots, but not willing to get dirty in the work of ministry. Look there at your copy of God's Word. There, at Verse 5 specifically, it says that Jonah had gone out and he had sat down at a place east of the city. And there, what did he do? He made himself a shelter, he sat in its shade, and he waited to see what would happen to the city. Now we see here how much of Jonah's world revolved around himself. Believing that Jonah is still going to get his way with God. That, we get the sense that's exactly what Jonah is hoping, right? Because there at the verse 10, and again, we, we talked about this some last week, but the verse, verse 10 of chapter 3 kind of launches us into chapter 4. But there at verse 10 of chapter 3, it says, when God saw what they did, God relented, right? He didn't, he didn't rain down wrath and, and fire and brimstone on Nineveh like Jonah was, happening, was hoping. And so in verse 1, of chapter 4, that's, that's where Jonah says, well, but to Jonah, he, this seemed wrong, and so he was angry. Jonah didn't get his way with God, but here in verse 5, what we get this sense is that Jonah is still hoping that maybe God will even change his mind. He's hoping that God will pour out his wrath on the Ninevites, and so he's hoping so much so that he's willing to sit and get a front row seat. Right? What do we see? Look, look there at verse 5. How does Jonah, how's Jonah responding there? Right? That great revival has happened in Nineveh. Jonah instead goes out of the city. Right? Now certainly, Jonah's thinking that if God is going to judge this city, he doesn't want to be inside the city. <laughs> so he wants to be outside of the city. And so what does he do? He, he takes his folding lawn chair. Right? Now how many of you have those lawn chairs? Right? Yeah, we, we know. You take them to sporting events. Now they've got some, some of these really fancy lawn chairs now that have like, like a... Um, a shelter, right, a, a roof over it that kind of folds up, right, like a, a, a bad toupee that kind of might go like this, right, it kind of folds up and it protects you uh, from the sun, right, so what does Jonah do? He went out of the city, it says that, that he went and, and he sat down east of the city, okay, so he's, he's, Jonah is willing to stay a while and he's willing to wait, he builds a, sh- a shelter, he wants to be comfortable as he watches these people experience God's judgment, right? He knows it could be a few weeks until God pours out his wrath, and so what does Jonah do? He takes the time to make a DIY shelter, right? He gets on YouTube's how to make a shelter when Nineveh is going to get destroyed. And then it says he waited to see what would happen to the city. I'll wait, God. 
I'll wait, Lord, for you to finally come around to what you know you should be doing. And rather than serving as a participant, Jonah sets up a protest. If it had been today, Jonah would have created an events page on Facebook. Join me to protest God's compassionate mercy. High noon on the eastern hillside at the corner of Tumbleweed and Crooked Creek. Bring your lawn chair and sunshade umbrella because it's hot. And maybe some food and drinks. Jonah stepped out when he should have been stepping in. And isn't that what self-pity does to our hearts? It causes us to remove ourselves from the opportunities of ministry that are right there before us. Jonah's self-centered heart rendered him useless in ministry. And his perspective now warped into a critical attitude. Even some of us in the church, I won't mention names or we won't mention names. I'll try not to make too much eye contact at this point in the sermon. Certainly probably none of us here, but we do tend at different times to find ourselves setting up our little shelters. We expect other people to serve us. We prefer to watch from a distance. We would rather not have to get truly involved in the ministry. Maybe under our breath we complain. Or maybe we make underhanded comments on social media. We invite other people to our self-absorbed pity party. We do this even sometimes in the church that when we don't get our way, we grow bitter and resentful. We start thinking, well, maybe it's time for me to find a, another church to be a part of. Maybe we even do this as believers within our culture, right? Within our neighborhoods. We, we walk into our houses, our homes, and we're shaking our heads at our neighbors' actions and, and the sinful activity that maybe they're participating in. And, and we just kind of shake in disbelief and we sit around the, the kitchen table and we talk critically about our neighbors' who are far from Jesus Christ, and instead of stepping into ministry, we step out of ministry. And we say things like, boy, if only it was like the good old days. If only we were a Christian nation again, as if we've ever been one. We say things like that and we cast judgment and we look at people with such a critical eye. We're no more better than that old grumpy man who says, stay off my lawn. Maybe it's time that we stop reading the CNN opinion pieces. Maybe it's time we turn off Fox News. Maybe it's time for us to take out the earbuds that broadcast the podcast that is feeding our critical souls. Maybe it's time for us to get our noses out from behind our phones and look up at the horizon and see that the field is white unto harvest. And to stop stepping out of ministry and to start stepping into ministry. And if I may, if I can make one more observation about Jonah at this point. The poor man is miserable. He's plain miserable. He's miserably watching for signs of people's failure and demise. He's, he's, like, he's just like... Can't wait to see this. Boy, how fun this is going to be. But he's alone and he's by himself. He's a miserable man. See, those who experience the joy of salvation are those who enter into the work of salvation. You want to experience the joy of salvation, it means you're doing the work of salvation. 
It means that you're investing in the lives of new believers. It means that you're inviting young men and young women into your life so that they can learn from you, so that you can pass the wisdom and the life experience that you have of traveling with Jesus, that you can pass it on to them. It's when we step into ministry, when we serve the widows, when we make meals for the sick, When we reach deep into our pockets and give generously to those in need. When we sit and weep with those who are grieving. It's when we teach and pass on the truths of Scripture. It's when we graciously confront error. It's when we love and we pray for our neighbors. It's when we... Love and pray for our enemies. It's when we make the decision to get out of our pity party and we roll up our sleeves and we commit ourselves to getting our hands dirty. Church, may God help us tear down our sideline booths of criticism, whether toward the church or other believers or toward our neighbors who are far from Christ. May we tear down our lawn chairs and our comfortable shade, and may we step into the hard work of ministry to enter into a dying world with the love of Christ and to declare the grace and the mercy of our compassionate God And to make the call of Christ and his salvation our daily mission. You want to ruin your pity party? Get busy in the work of the ministry. Ask yourself questions regularly. Get busy in the work of the ministry. Number three, are we having fun yet? (laughs) Trust in God's providence. Trust in God's providence. Self-pity is one of the responses when we fail to believe that God's plan is better than our own personal plan. That's what we do. We tend to pity ourselves. When circumstances don't go our way, when our prayers seem to go unanswered, when when our prayers that we're praying for good things, they seem to go unanswered, when maybe our ministries fail, We are tempted to enter into self-pity when our good desires aren't met. We are tempted to have a pity party when bad things always seem to be happening to good people. Maybe when the dream marriage becomes a nightmare. Or when the wayward child never returns home. These circumstances and other feelings have a way of awakening our hearts to doubt and they invite us into self-pity. You see, while Jonah is sulking, God continues to flex his sovereign muscle and teaches Jonah. Even though he's flexing his muscle, he's teaching Jonah in a very gentle way, but he teaches Jonah with a lesson in providence. Look there at verse Verses 6 through 8 says, Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant, and he made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose... God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Four times in these verses, what do we see? We see God is showing his rule and his authority over nature. 
God is showing how he will accomplish his will even through the smallest of circumstances. All throughout the book of Jonah, we are reminded of God's providential activity. Whether it's a whale or a worm, whether it's a ship or shade, whether it's the waves on the ocean or the scorching wind over land, God's providence accomplishes God's perfect plan. And in a similar way that God is free to give and to take away a shade plant, so is he also free to give his compassionate mercy to the Ninevites. (laughs) And not only is God free to give his compassionate mercy to the Ninevites, but guess what, church? The good news is that God freely gives his compassionate and his mercy to you. To us. Job is upset that God would give the same mercy that was given to him. That God would share it with others. Right? The chapter begins with Jonah being upset at God's mercy. But then at what point is Jonah... Does does Jonah kind of... Is he happy again when God gives him this plant? Right? He, basically, Jonah says, God, I will be happy with you as long as I get my way, as long as you're making me comfortable, as long as you're serving my needs, as long as my plans are your plans, then I'll be happy. And when that's our attitude, and when we approach God in that way, and things don't work out, again, what's our response? We're going to to find ourselves in a self-pity party. And so the way in which we ruin that pity party is to ask God to help us to trust in His plan. To trust in His providence. When life doesn't go our way, we should turn our attention to Job. A man, right? I think Michael mentioned him already. A man... Uh, who, from every human perspective, had reason to throw himself a pity party. In fact, Job had some people around him who were willing to plan the pity party for Job. But Job acknowledges that God is sovereign and that God has every right to do as he pleases. And so Job's confidence is in the foundation of God's providence. Job is certain that God will do what is best for Job's good and God's glory. And church, that is such a hard truth, right? It's easy to preach. It's easy to sit in these seats amongst this crowd and say, amen. But man, when the wheels fall off of your life, it is hard. But how much more do we need to saturate our hearts and our minds with God's word, with the testimony of other believers, so that maybe we too would respond in the same way in which Job responded. Soon after hearing the news that essentially all of Job's life has just been ripped out from under him, in Job 1, verses 20 and 22, Job got up, it says. Job got up, he tore his robe, he shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. How often do you find yourself guilty of charging God with wrongdoing? We need to ask the Lord to help us to trust Him. To trust Him when life isn't going our way. And that the Lord would help us to trust in His divine providence so that we won't find ourselves in the sin of self-pity. And then finally, the fourth one is to be concerned about eternal matters. To be concerned about eternal matters. We see this here in verses 9 through 11. Right? If Nineveh's repentance and salvation didn't make Jonah happy, then what did? <laughs> One of the greatest revivals 
of a wicked people that has ever occurred in the history of time has now just is, is now unfolding before Jonah's eyes. If that doesn't make Jonah happy, then what does? Well, chapter 4 begins with Jonah being upset that God would show mercy to the people of Nineveh. The chapter begins with Jonah being angry. His countenance changes, though, midway through the chapter when God provides the plant, when God provided the means of cool shade for Jonah, and he responds by being very happy about the plant. Clearly, what we see is that Jonah's greatest concern is not in line with God's compassionate and merciful heart, but Jonah's greatest concern is to focus more on his petty personal comfort. Jonah's anger then is rekindled when God removes the plant, thereby making Jonah uncomfortable. Again, not only did God remove the plant, but, but God then sends an east, uh, a, scorching, a scorching wind to make him even more uncomfortable. What, what God is doing is God is getting at Jonah's heart by arguing from the lesser to the greater. Right? Jonah's anger... Uh, jo- Jonah's anger here is, is on full display, so much so that Jonah, his response is, it would be better for me to die than have to live. And, and again, God peels back the layers of Jonah's heart with, again, another question. We see it says, but God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And what is Jonah's response? The audacity of Jonah to respond in this way. It is, he said. And I am so angry. Again, Jonah wishes he were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant. though You did not tend it or make it grow. You had nothing to do with this plant, Jonah. It sprang up overnight. It died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? The love, the care, and concern of God for those who are far from him is evident in these verses. What do we see? We see God's compassionate heart for the most wicked of sinners, how we would define them, wouldn't we? Right, Just across the hillside from Jonah's sideline seat is a city filled with more than 120,000 people who are spiritually confused. These people lack understanding. They hunger for what is true. They fail to know how to choose what is right from wrong. They they fail to know good from evil. They fail to know light from darkness. The expression of there of verse 11 refers to their moral and their spiritual ignorance. They are like sheep without a shepherd. We are reminded of Jesus' response in Mark chapter 6. After spending time there on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus went ashore and he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And in seeing that, what did Jesus do? And he began to teach them many things. God's critique toward Jonah is, don't you see the great need before your eyes? But Jonah, you're more concerned about this plant. You care more about pursuing your personal comfort than showing compassion toward people in great need. Jonah, you care more for the shade over your head than the salvation of your enemies. This is is a devastating summary of Jonah's heart. It revealed his willingness to die Because of his lack of comfort, but his unwillingness to live for the benefit and the salvation of others. Jonah has consumed, has been consumed with his petty affairs. Jonah is consumed with with how dogmatic he is in his opinion of what is right and what should happen. And Jonah is dead set on his personal comfort. The issue of great frustration for Jonah was a shriveled up dead plant. 
A plant that he neither planted, watered, or cultivated. A plant that he had nothing to do with its growth, and yet he is ready to die because it was now taken from him. We tend to be quick to shake our heads in disbelief toward Jonah, but I think further evaluation of our own hearts may reveal a similar struggle. Could the same be said of our lives, of our daily activities, of our daily pursuits? Are we more concerned about the petty comforts of this present world than the eternal matters of the world to come? Church, have we lost sight of our neighbor's needs behind that comfortable privacy fence we've built in hopes of keeping them at a distance so as to not infringe on our comfortable personal lives? Do our entertaining hobbies demand more time and fill our schedules in such a way that we are convinced that we are too busy now to go out of our way to help those who are in need? Church, when we allow our hearts to become consumed by our own problems, by our own wants, by our own preferences, and we fail to see the bigger opportunities at hand, and those opportunities that are of great eternal consequence, when we neglect to be concerned about what really matters, about what is eternal, our spiritual lives are going to shrivel just like that dead plant. And we will live our life in a constant state of a pity party for ourselves. Because God's concerns are not our concerns. So I wonder what consumes your mind, how you invest your money, how you spend your time, what you talk about, do your daily concerns reflect eternal matters? Young person, parents, grandparents, what are we teaching our children to be concerned about? How are we passing on, how are we living out for them Lives in which they can see through us, through our actions, through our conversations around the table, that we truly are concerned about those who are far from Christ. Parents, would your, would your child, if asked, would they say, yeah, my mom and dad, they love their enemies. They pray for those who are mean to us. My mom and dad, they go out of their way to serve those who can't repay them. Young person who's in college, right? We determine our degree, our, our degree based upon an occupation. And ultimately, why? How much does it pay? Oh, that God would teach our hearts to be consumed with what really matters. That in the timeline of eternity, we would be committed to pursuits and glories that are greater than our own self-concerned agendas. That our lives would be lived to causes that will outlive ourselves. That we won't... Man, I need a Kleenex. That Someone got one? Thank you. Or else I'm going to use my sleeve. That we will not... Let me turn my attention to the retired folk in here. That we will not finish our days in this world comfortable. Thank you. That we will not finish our days. That we will not finish our days. I use my arm anyway. Uh, that we will not finish our days simply comfortable in ease and entertainment. That, that we will finish our days spent for the Lord. 
investing ourselves in ways that will pay eternal dividends. Church, you want to ruin a pity party and maybe, uh, hopefully, hopefully I've ruined your pity party. You want to ruin a pity party? Ask yourself some heart-probing questions now in response to this sermon. Right? Ask yourself those heart-probing questions. Get involved in the work of the ministry. Fold up and throw away your sideline chair. And get involved. Trust in God's providence for your life. Believe that His plan is greater than your plan. And learn to be concerned about eternal matters. Jonah ends with verse 11. And it ends here with a question that's unanswered. It's almost as if Jonah, who's writing this in reflection of his life, he's looking back. He's learned the lesson and now he's presenting it to us. How will you now respond? How are you going to write the rest of your story that God has given you in response to God's gracious mercy for you? And ultimately... The book of Jonah is about God's mercy. Because frankly, church, if, if the world never goes your way, if, if the plans of your life never come to fruition, but you have the mercy of Christ, in the end, can I tell you something? That's all that matters. That really is all that matters. The end of your life, it will not matter how big of a bank account you leave behind. It will not matter how good your marriage is. It will not matter what influence you may have had in this world. And all of those might be good things when used for God's glory. But those things all fall by the wayside. The end, at the end of your life, what matters is do you have Christ? And we look to the cross and we're reminded of His mercy for us. And so if we have Christ, what more do I need? Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ on my right. Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down. Christ when I sit down. Christ in the morning when I arise. His mercies were what? Were new this morning. And you have Christ. So break free from your pity party and live with joy. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you now for your word. God, I pray now that your word uh, would do a wonderful work in our lives through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.